this is Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Warped Celluloid. I'm your host, Jack Rourke, with my co-host... Chandler Williams. How are you doing today, Chandler? How's the vibes going? I'm good, Jack. How are you? I'm pretty groovy. Pretty groovy, man. What are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about Under the Silver Lake. I found some kind of code or, like, secret message in her apartment. It means stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages... From Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're going to find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine. Mostly fine. Um... Why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? A little. Welcome to Purgatory. Good to be here. You're living in a carnival. Hoping to win a prize. What are you gonna win? Under the Silver Lake. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting, wasn't it, from the sounds of it? So, a little history is provided. I remember, uh, as usual, this is a movie I introduced Chandler to, all right, to uh, because if you look at our Letterboxd rankings, because of course we have Letterboxd, it's yes, it's, follow, follow, follow it's the stat, it's default. Yep, we'll we'll give it read out our uh, socials at the end of this pro probably maybe if we remember. Anyway, back to the main topic at hand. As usual, I was the one who introduced Chandler to this, but this was long before this podcast was even an idea. I remember, I think it was around March I introduced it to you, right? Yeah, it was spring quarter. Yeah, spring quarter. And I, anyway. I finally got to got around to watching it this summer, yeah. and um, I first watched it, it like 2 a.m. Um, I watched it at 3 a.m. Yeah. I just remember like you know, like a bag of nachos in front of me, just like just collapsing on the couch, like let just like let, let it wash over you. That's the best way I can. Yes. Sum up. I watched it at, when I got done watching it that night. I watched it again um, as soon as I woke up that next morning because I just I just had to see it again. I had to. Like, reprocess... Like, yes, reprocess it. I remember that. Exactly. It reminds me of a review of Inherent Vice from, uh, I think, Screen Crush, where the guy where the guy uh, writing was like, every ticket to Inherent Vice should come with one either one of the following, or in a joint or another ticket to Inherent Vice. Yes, exactly. That seems like the same applies here. And we'll come back to Inherent Vice. Oh, definitely, because yes. not just in comparison to this, but I think we could devote an entire episode to it. Absolutely. I know I devoted an entire essay to it for a class already, so... But anyways, this film spoke to me on so many levels. Yep. It did for me, too. It was. I remember uh, when I I first saw it uh, through not very great means. So here's the little interesting story about how this came to be. The movie was supposed to come out in June of 2018, roughly around the time uh, that Jurassic World sequel did. Then out of nowhere, 
after a mixed reception at Con, it got pushed to Christmas. Then, le then a little later, for other reasons, I'm not sure if it was just a crowded schedule, but they pushed it all the way back to April, and instead, they just almost ditched the entire theatrical release with a barring a few, a few minor screenings in New York and LA. For it is always New York and LA, and then just dumped it on digital. Sad, but at least we can see it now. I'll make, I'll commend them for making it, if nothing else. I mean, yes, I was able to watch it. Uh, I actually bought it at Target. Yeah, and all right. I got the Blu-ray once it dropped. I was so happy I got a physical release, even though it's kind of bare bones. Yeah, like they don't even have a director's commentary if I'm, if I'm certain. I know it was only like an interview with the composer, the composer, and maybe like a couple other things. Yeah, yeah. I don't even think they had the trailer on it. Which yeah, is weird. They, have, they have a trailer. It's weird how uh, bare bones DVD release. Like remember, I just saw uh, Upgrade on Blu-ray, which awesome movie and probably the best thing Blumhouse has ever put out. Not up to this point. Well, if you haven't seen Upgrade, go watch Upgrade. It's ter it's terrific as B movie entertainment. But um, Under the Silver Lake is on Amazon Prime now. It's on Amazon Prime, and uh, if you have Canopy, it's on there, too. Uh, so is the rest of A24's library. Oh, really? Yep. Nice. Can Canopy's free if you just have a library car I mean, card. You've got a ton of uh, classic and art house films. No, they are not spiring, and they are not uh. sponsoring this episode. <laughs> By the way, uh, we just really if we like something, we're going to shout it out on here because we just want more people to check out these movies. Yes, and then they deserve more recognition. Yeah. And we, they deserve some love, and you know what? We have a soapbox. It's our du in our duty to stand on it, and we actually like say, "Hey, check this out! Support this! Extra, extra!" Why did I just do the paperboy thing? I don't even know why I did that. <laughs> anyway, I brought up upgrade because there are almost there's pretty much yeah there's no no double feature special features on that at all. Period. I think the most is like uh, with the if you plug in the digital copy, you get a director's commentary with Leigh Whannell, but that's it. It's so weird. It's odd to me that they... I would like to see a, a director's commentary with David Robert Mitchell. Oh, absolutely. He just seems like an interesting dude. Yep. Especially to make this... I wish we had more director's commentaries these days. Like, it seems like special features on DVDs are just a dying art. Absolutely. Because everything, everything's all digital now. Yeah. All and screened. even that... I remember the one of the good things about the Criterion Channel, which I wish I had right now. Sponsored by, by the Criterion. Sponsored <laughs> by Criterion, because of course it is, because pretentious film students... I wish I could think of like a one of those old '80s VHS jingles that we could stream on this, but I'm, my mind's going blank. I guarantee this movie will be on the Criterion. Maybe I remember. I think Lionsgate is a bit iffy when it comes to the rights on that. So oh, really? That's unlike. I know Netflix just put it, did a deal with them to put out a. They just put out Roma back in. Actually, they're not putting out Roma for another ten days. And then uh. The Irishman. Um, Marriage Story. Marriage Story and Atlantics, I think. I, It'd be cool if they put Dolmine as my name in there, because Dolmine as my name is fantastic. Oh, it is. I, it's, I, not, it's so good to see Eddie Murphy looking like he cares in a movie again. He's so much fun. Like a pimp. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I couldn't see the Criterion um, release of that. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, they do have Beyond the Valley of the, the Dolls in there, so... Speaking of Valley of the Dolls... All the this move and special features in general. This movie is packed with little extras, just a little, or the little deep background details, just to keep your eye. More so than stuff like Repo Man, where it's like flesh out the world, where it is, it is just sensory overload times. But it's weird. To, I find it weird to call a movie sensory overload that's this languidly paced. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a languid is the best word. For yeah. It's not exactly leisurely. It's like. It's like going on a very slow drive, but right through a ghost town, but you keep noticing weird things. Like, hang on a second, that sign is—is is that sign misspelled? Or spell? No, you can't tell if it's because there's something actually wrong, or you're just tired from driving so much. That's a good. I think it's a good. It, way it, it makes the movie feel 
longer, but I think it, it really works. Longer in a good way. Way like you want to just soak in all of it. Absolutely. There's so Take much. Take it all in. There's so much stop to soak and, in. Stop and smell the roses. And there's so many small details that yep. seemingly don't really matter. Oh yeah. And which mostly because they don't. If you yeah. Do. I was gonna say so because some entire I think scenes the, just have nothing to do with the plot. The whole movie is a giant rug pull if you think about it because I think one of the key themes is about about it is it intentionally invites you to read way too much into with the conspiracy theory, I mean, theories and all the weird details like the homeless king. The homeless the, king. Oh, oh God gosh. bless the homeless king <laughs> and other things like the parties and those the fact that they use cookies and his invitations and all the weird symbols you draw like those double di those double diamonds or those number yeah the, five three nine the, I think is the that number. was the homeless um, yeah the language little, yeah it's the little code which remember, is just awesome by the way a little detail I remember is the book he reads the code breakers that's an actual like book that co people who speak in codes use to tra like translate stuff like wow. so it was used in the the David Fincher movie Zodiac yeah um whenever when whenever a director shows yeah a book like huh. in their film they're like huh I yeah. You should probably I didn't check even know out. the book was that popular. I was like, I might actually try and find a copy now, but I don't think it's even in print anymore. It reminded me when I saw um, The Matrix and you see Simuli, or Simulacra and Simulation, hmm. a copy of that in The Matrix. It would be, you know, I just realized, it would be funny as hell if somewhere in Ready Player One there's a copy of Snow Crash lingering in the background, considering <laughs> how much the book of Ready Player One cribs from that. I love Ready Player One, by the way. That was a fun, that was a really fun roller coaster of a movie. I actually have not seen it. I think I... Yeah, no, I I forgot the Blu-ray at home. I remember Snow Crash is the better book, by the way. Way it's it's got more to say about what the what a virtual reality would do to culture, culture and pop culture, and whether or not that has any stake in the world. What's it called? Snow Crash. It's by uh, Neil Stevenson, one of the great cyberpunk writers, alongside uh, William Gibson and uh, Philip K. Dick, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm not sure if he strictly stuck to the cyberpunk. What were we talking about again? Um. Oh yeah, conspiracy theories yes. under the Silver Lake. Yes. Like I remember, the sexual innuendos. Oh god, all the Im imagery so of that. Many. And like they, the play, the Playboy cover that keeps showing up. Like not only do they talk about sexual innuendos god. throughout the film, the film is, is full of sexual innuendos. There's a very sleazy bent. Like there's a scene in particular that's been pointed out by a few people. That that's sleazy. I I like to use it as an example for people who misunderstand the movie. I mean, not in the ooh, you just don't get it. I'm like I think we watch different movies because if you pay attention, you'll know that it's not. It isn't the thing you're claiming it is. Which There's scene? This, it's the scene where uh, he, uh, Andrew Garfield and Topher Grace they're sitting on a, I mean, they're sitting on lawn chairs uh, playing with a drone, and there's this there's this model actress they're basically spying on her because they're assholes. Yes. Uh, and they, she's like stripping down. You think it's like oh maybe she's doing this for clientele, and she stops, sits down, and just starts crying, crying, and they shut the laptop because they one of my favorite have scenes. a bit of, yeah a bit of humanity. That's common. There, like that's saying something about the sleazy nature of Hollywood right now. Yes. We might have just cost ourselves a job by talking about it. <laughs> also, they that, talked about um, the supermodel. They, they mentioned uh, Amazon. Really? I remember I, I brought social commentary. I brought Amazon. the Irishman, and oh god, I just wanted to do all the dumb shit that sprung about Anna Paquin's character not getting a lot of dialogue or screen time. Even though, if you watch the movie, it is a very specific choice to not have her speak a, a lot, a lot, and she's very important because of that. I argue the same is true of uh, Riley Keough's role in this. She only shows up in like the first twenty minutes, fifteen probably. Is she the girlfriend? Yeah, she's the girl that I mean, that uh, Andrew Garfield's character becomes obsessed with. Wait. Oh wait, the um, Sarah. Yes. Sarah. Okay. I'm yeah, she shows up a little bit, a little bit at the beginning, and then a little bit at the end, the end. But that's about it. Yes. I think her role, which um, spoilers abound as per usual, I think her role is also indicative because I mean, her absence speaks vault. 
And Molly was like, this dude, he only talked to her for a night, but he's obsessed with her and trying to track her down. Yeah, because she had a, she does have like a pretty impact, yeah. impactful, um, night with like her. first couple scenes. Yeah. The, the only scene she's in in the beginning is like they're pretty. Uh, Doesn't she have a dog named Coca Cola? Yes. Pendables, moonshine, and sunshine. That's oh, one of the fantastic details of this film. The dog's name is Coca Cola. Oh boy. Yep. Beware the dog killer. Oh, oh my God. gosh, that's that's that, that's, that's the opening shot of the movie. Is just so it's uh, just a girl wiping that I mean, all that graffiti off of the yes. window. Yes, that that's very re- reminiscent of Donnie Darko, like anyway, the um, the, over, the overhead yeah. shot um, of the spray paint on the ground. Oh yeah. Beware the dog oh killer. yeah. The, I mean, all the lingering on like graf- graffiti and the way the camera is more is passively observing, but in a re- really fascinating way. Absolutely. And I we'll, go, we'll we'll get around to talking about Donnie oh, Darko. Trust me, this Definitely. episode. I know our episodes of this podcast have been rather short, like 20 to 30 minutes, but we're probably going to get like an hour's worth of material out of just this movie because there's just so much to unpack. Yes. We could, we we could literally talk for like days. Yes. <laughs> I would like to talk to David Robert Mitchell just like at yeah. a bar. I, I'd love to get to know his creative process for this. Oh, I'm yeah. Fa- I, okay, I'm going to put a caveat here. I don't like this trend in a film fan of these, these days to label anyone who, who puts out a pretty good debut debut or second feature as an instant genius that's going to be one of the best of their time because it always feels like jumping the gun. Not that... I'm not trying to do this to downplay or or, uh, p- or piddle on people's talent. Or talent. I'm just saying, like, let's take it slow. slow um, because they could be a one-hit wonder, which... Yeah, or a one, or maybe just... Or maybe just, like, them. take it slow. Like, don't... Because it builds up all these expectations and what... Yes. Anything that... The which problem is everything's a zero Kelly. or a ten these days. Yeah. I mean, these days where it's either awful or a masterpiece, and most people forget that most movies are either okay or pretty good. Good, and the truly awful, or the truly exceptional, are the ones that stand out and become classics in our mind. I agree. Richard Kelly. It's funny you bring up Richard Kelly because I remember one of the biggest things I've heard uh, brought up to this is not Donnie Darko. It's his second movie that uh, arguably tanked his career. Yes. Southland Tales is the one I keep hearing. Yep. Which I haven't seen rock. yet, but... Isn't The Rock in it? Yeah, The Rock is in it. So is Sarah Michelle Gellar and Sean William Scott. And it looks like, like a found footage type... Is it found footage? Because I've heard... I've heard it's... I've seen one It's really it. weird. It looks like handheld. Like, it's... I heard it's weird in a very specific and pretentious way, which makes me kind of... I almost might check it out just as a curiosity object. Yeah. Yeah, like a carnival freak. No, but I'm, I've always wanted to tread lightly with that kind of thing. I would consider uh, Richard Kelly a one-hit wonder, though. Eh, kind of. I mean, he did... Has he done anything this decade? Because I remember the no. last thing he did with, that, to my memory, was a thriller with Cameron Diaz called The Box that was based oh, on really? a Richard Matheson story. Yep, I think it was a remake. Was it good? I, I heard it was okay. I heard it was okay. I'd like to see him work again because... I mean, compared to Donnie Darko, nothing is... Yeah, and the thing is, you like Donnie Darko more than I do. I think oh, it's I pretty good, Donnie but Darko. I don't know, maybe I should have seen it younger. Yeah, when did you see it? I saw it just a few months ago, actually. Oh, okay, I saw I it. I saw it back in October because I saw it on stream. Like, okay, you know what? I might as well check this one off the list. I saw it when I was a sophomore in high school, and it yeah, I, spoke volumes to I me. Was gonna, I was going to say, I remember I saw the, the World's End when I was 13, and that <laughs> that's still become my favorite movie. Yeah, as an yeah. edgy uh, sophomore in high school at the time, it, yeah. it just, it was a, so much. Back to Under the Silver Lake. There's a lot of things this movie's been get, getting compared to, and ca- compared to, some of which are accurate, some of which I don't think are. Like Southland Tales, that's was going to be inevitable. Well, I think even if it's not really a story, it does have kind of a, sim- a similar. How did this get made with this much resources behind it? Well, yes. Although this is a far better movie than Southland Tales, I'm just willing to be much on that. more successful. Oh, uh, maybe financially, who knows? Because because I mean, yeah. the. I mean, the, at least in the, the number uh, crunching behind this is always smoke and mirrors. Within a uh, fan response. Yep. 
At least this is actually developing in a, a genuine cult vault. Absolutely. And not just the ironic lulls. Yep. But uh, there, there's a lot um, that this movie takes from. Ref, yeah. Uh, it's reference, not... There's, obvi there's obviously the specters of Vertigo and Mulholland Drive. Yes. Obviously Inherent Vice. The beautiful um, Los Angeles yep, all, backdrop. All, obviously the pop culture reference. Oh, so many, so many pop culture references. Remember, it's that, just the... It's like a, there's a little in-joke, actually. I remember this one you... I, I saw it for, first viewing, and I remember, like... Is this an intentional, like, meta-statement about Andrew Garfield's career, or is this just, like, a fun little, little goof? It's where he, where he gets the Spider-Man comic, and he wakes up with it, it's, like, stuck to his hand, and he tries to yeah. flip it off. Which I think is just a fun little goof. Yeah, it's, I think it, it's a fun little Because in the, in the script, I was actually able to find a copy of the script. Was um, it on Reddit? Because I'm pretty sure... Because I remember a lot of the scripts I find for production, and are usually on subreddits, or I usually ask around for Twitter music, or in, uh, mutuals, because I know a guy who knows a guy. Yeah, I, I got it from some blog, but I don't think it was Reddit, but it was some blog. Yeah, I remember. But um, in the script, um, it talks about him actually going to the comic book store, and when he purchases yeah. the copy of Under the Silver Lake, the comic, he... The uh, little fanzine? Yeah, it specifically says that he oh, yeah. buys a copy of Spider-Man. Yeah. So. I was gonna... Did it say the issue number and everything? No, it just said... Um, just gonna know, like, oh, comic. ah, fun. So. I was gonna say... That reminds me of the whole zines. One of my favorite bits of satire in, her, in the central commentary is how shitty and shallow modern L.A. is in the whole hipster culture. Is that this movie has so much naked contempt for it that it's rich. Right, the way that every that everything matters and that they'll just appropriate anything, but even if they don't really have any fun, there's yeah, attachment. Yeah, like, nothing matters. Like that's like that stupid rock band, uh, Jesus and the Rides of Dracula. Yes. Like oh, which God. I think is just. A, they uh, actually have sold a little uh, forty-five inch record of it. Really? Yeah, not forty-five inch, forty-five RPM. Um, I would like. It's to on Amazon for like seven bucks, I think. Really? Yep. I would like to um like. Yeah, that would be fun. I, wanna, I want to get a prop from that from this film. I, oh, I would love to get a while few props it's still too. fresh. Like I'm, I'd probably love to have like hang up the pizza box with all the code in there. Yes. No, that'd be funny. That'd be funny. Or like one of the actual copies of the forty-fives yep. that uh, she passes out at the parties. I remember this, parties. This whole movie is. It's obviously pulling from stuff like Vertigo. We're in Vertigo and. You know, and body double, that kind of thing. Uh, it's sunset, more body double than Vertigo, because considering how uh, it... But Vertigo, the difference between uh, that's, this and body double and a few other things, I think is because Vertigo actually likes Jimmy Stewart's character. Or in the context of the narrative, he's more of just as innocent and be, gradually being corrupted by everything around him. While something like body double, this guy's kind of a scumbag with li little to no moral compass from the beginning. Yeah. Vertigo is one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. I... I need to rewatch it because I remember. Okay, this is pretty good, but I'm like, what am I missing here? Because I actually have a copy it of it. I have it too. I have it too. Nice. I got on. I got it. Uh, I got it as an impulse buy one over the summer. I was actually um, given yeah. a Hitchcock collection. Speaking of Hitchcock and uh, fil the film's music, that brings me to one of my other favorite things about this, and probably my favorite thing about the movie. Period. If I'm being honest, the score by Disasterpiece. The best way I can describe it is, is if it follows was his him playing with his own inner John Carpenter and infusing with like chip, 
when I chip to him in modern touches. This is him playing with Bernard Herrmann, but adding like horror movie cues and like Super Nintendo sounds and really just like playing with it. Hearing, it, makes, it makes it feel like, like a 50s movie. Well, less. It feels like a weird fever dream of fifties. 50s, 50s movies by the late night of MTV, MTV and Super Nintendo. Now, and a stack of video store rentals from the really, the really cheap end of the horror section, like the slasher knockoffs, like Blood Diner, Hell, even Body Double, even though that was a De Palma movie, and De Palma, well, De Palma is king around these parts. The score is always constant. It it yeah. hardly ever stops. Yeah. And, and it, it always keeps playing with your expectations in the way it switches moods, and sometimes within single scenes. And like, yep, it that yep. it's just it's, it, gets, it makes it so much more impactful. I'll probably drop a little bit of it in the, into the mix once that we're done uh, record, yeah, recording. Yeah, but nice. suffice to say, you should check it out, out if you uh, have an affinity for film music. It's just I'm. It's also nice because I've been listening to Disaster Beast since high school. I discovered his stuff almost entirely because of it. Fall. Well, this guy mostly does chip tune, I mean, chip tune uh, synthwave. No, not synthwave, more um, electronic pieces. He actually, the reason he got so much notoriety is because he did the score for the game Fez, mm. which I finally played. That game is my zen. It, you know, like, speaking of It Follows, yep. you can see a lot of uh, Mitchell's um, Hallmark, directorial hallmarks. Absolutely, and like the slow yep. track ends. And, um, I mentioned that I don't like talking about a, I mean, a director, I mean, like up and coming directors is like the next big. A big thing because I think it's often overhyped and does damage to them as well as our own perceptions. I think I'm gonna break that rule because I think that I might. If David Robert Mitchell keeps this up, he might become one of my. Because I'm fascinated Same. by the way that the way this guy makes not even the technical stuff, but the way he handles you, or the ideas of youth in movies so uniquely and just a way that's so tuned into now. Now, like it follows the movie that sums up a lot of fears of young, of young people and like the way we the way we mature, the way we eventually lose our. Our innocence. How do how do we change? How do we change? How do we survive? How do we how do we cope with the inevitability of some things? And in this in this film, I think uh, Mitchell speaks more about boredom. Like the well, boredom. yeah, g generational boredom and direction, yes. aimlessness. Re yeah, really, the like, aimlessness of the millennials. It it also seems funny to me me if I might actually add because there is technically a ticking clock or a goal or a goal. It's just that Andrew Garfield's character doesn't or makes no interest in it until the last moment. It's him having to pay his fucking rent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like... And spoiler alert, he gets evicted. At the end, but it doesn't really seem to matter at all. Yeah, he, he doesn't really care. I mean, he never cared from the beginning, so who knows. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first hint, I think, that this kid... The weird thing that I get from people who misunderstand it is that they think it's misogynist and it's this advocate for, like, incel. That that kind of whole disgusting subculture. When I think it's actually more of a refutation and uh, spiteful or make, or satire of it. Yeah, We're, I, I think it's a critical um, look at Mitchell's life. Yeah, I, I mean that, May, that's a pretentious thing. I'm not sure if it's autobiographical though, but there's de I'm getting the feeling that he's known guys like hell. We we we've known guys like this. I, we've all been guys like yes. this at some point. I'm in our sure lives. Mitchell has felt like this yeah. character, Sam. Yeah, and um, played by Andrew Garfield, which his performance is so good. This might be the best performance I've ever seen from. Oh, absolutely. It's a tie between this and his work in Social Network. Yes. Because yes. The this whole movie hinges on him. Him, we never leave his side throughout the, the whole thing, and he, that's a lot, a lot of responsibility for an actor. I think he carries it fantastically. And he didn't have that much um, character change over time. Yep. He just, well, I mean, towards the end. I mean, he changes, but he doesn't really, really like he doesn't, he, he doesn't change. Tone. He doesn't change in a way that's meaningful. No, no. He, he changes, changes in a way more, in more of a sad, depressing way. Like, wow, I just wasted my, I mean, the amount of time I've, <laughs> I've wasted over nothing. Nothing. It just makes me think. Like trying to decode. 
Yeah, trying to find messages. Which I don't. I don't like the idea that media is inherently meaningless because all art touches people and I think sticks with them and helps in some cases keep them alive. Yeah. There's a Woody Allen movie called uh, The Purple Rose of Cairo, that deals with with how um, I mean the movies are kind of double edged sword and that they can that they're a wonderful escape but they're also never they they also call attention to their own artifice and fantasy. See, by never on, on the one hand. That movie you loved as a kid, yay, it's the same as I remember it. And then you, you wait a few years after seeing it a few more times within a short period of time. And I mean, go, oh, it's the exact same as I was when I was a kid. That kind of that kind of uh, duality. I, I, think it's I think this movie speaks a lot about the media in general. Yeah, like, the effect, um, both the negative, most yes. of the negative, but also po the positive are more like completely tertiary. And not in a cynical old man yelling at cloud way, but more, we're not, you're ingesting it wrong. Yeah, we're putting value. In, well, I can argue the in biggest like thing sexualized. In the world. Way. Oh yeah, God, God, the in the way that we I brought it up earlier, the way we build up expectations out of people that are just completely absurd. Yes, and like and a girlfriend, baseless in the beginning talks about yeah Riley Keough's um, character. Yes, how well, Sarah? Yeah. No, I'm saying the um the actress. Oh, uh, Ricky Lindholm. Yes. yes, who's only in the film in two scenes. Oh yeah, and she's so funny. Yes, she is. I remember I think she's a, the part with him where they're just talking over star. him. Oh yeah, what she? I think she's just an actress. I'm not sure. Because she to... she always wears like obscure. How many times have you seen this? By the way, twice. I've seen it three. I might get, put on a fourth in a couple days. Oh, same. But like yeah. she um, she's always wearing like a semi-revealing. Yeah, I mean, that could be just a uh, commentary on how limiting the role of a role of actresses in Hollywood is. Possibly yes. Which I'm glad that, if nothing else, we can agree that's a good thing that's changing, right? At the very least. I mean, yeah. Like, totally. that's the thing about. If there's one thing I love about 2019 in film is that I think it's finally won people over to representation. And not in a, a preachy way, you know, like, hey, you, we get different kinds of stories this way. Yes. More, it's, not, it's not diminishing anything, it's adding more, more, which is why I love something like this, because we see, we've all seen Neo Noirs. This story. I mean, this is no exception. It does kind of go off the path of verdict. Vertigo, guy very much a neo-noir. It is very much vertigo in its DNA. Especially body double, but with less gore. Or at least less concentrated bits of gore. Like, there's disturbing stuff in this movie. Yeah, and you, can, right. you can see Mitchell's undertones. But it's not like someone getting killed with like a giant drill kind of way. No. By the way, you need to watch Body Double. That is such a... I won't write that yep. down. De Palma, it's, he made it no secret that, that he's a huge Hitchcock fan. Like, blow... If you look at stuff like Trust Kill and Blow Out... Or and Blow Out, and the fact that he almost made Psycho 2... Wow. Which is actually really underrated. Underrated in a lot of ways. Uh, he's... I remember hearing someone say he was Quentin Tarantino before Quentin Tarantino in terms of the way he remix, remixes and appropriates uh, movie, or in old violence. movies. And not just well, violence, just like the or in imagery and technique. And technique And yeah. It's always why I'm so frustrated by people to pretend... To, when he, they to pretend that he's the first guy to do this because, no, these... I mean, this is a, something that's been a while... Well, for as long as there have been fans of movies. Yeah, every director is steals. Like, yeah, great, good artists and borrow great artists steal and such. Absolutely. It's just, absolutely. Some are just more flagrant, some are just more skilled with it. I mean, like, in, uh, in Robert Mitchell, classes, uh, we were uh, forced to read um, Steal Like an Artist. Yeah, oh, right, I had to read that too. Not forced, but. Well, know, we assigned. had it. Yeah. Assigned. Forced, kind of. <laughs> you could say. I mean, it's cool, but. Yeah. Um, no, I love School Like an Artist. I remember there's, there's all. There, there, you get constant hints at how crappy Andrew Garfield's character is through just from the opening, just the way he like linger, 
Ryan lingerly stares at people in the like, yeah. coffee shop. <laughs> shop the, and the way he just like crumbles out the you know, the red note. The fact that he just like stares at people from his balcony with and, binoculars you know, and with the cigarette hanging in his mouth. Yeah. I love that shot so much. By the way, and the way when he whenever his mom when he calls, he's just being so he's like, I got to get back to work. And he's yeah. just he's just doing fuck all on a balcony. He's watching his topless neighbor. Oh god, the one with the, the parrots. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay, yeah. that's an interesting detail. Surprisingly, so. she's not a member of the cult. At least I don't think so. We're in the whole cult conspiracy thing at the end. No. Yep. I could see her being um, possibly in that crowd when she was young. Maybe. Maybe that's. Yeah. I think it's le- the thing is I remember one of my favorite things about stuff about any movie where mystery is a central force and even Alien is. You'll do this, and I'd argue the textbook example is that it asks questions that are a lot more interesting when left unanswered. Uh, yeah. Like how the space jockey get there and stuff, even though, admittedly, I am a fan of the Alien prequels. Alien <laughs> Covenant gets way too much shit from people, in my opinion. Yeah. The movie that re- nihilistic and goth. Prometheus has problems, I'll agree with the general. But Alien Covenant, that is a movie, a movie that is way more interesting, especially coming out of this modern studio system with how gothic and bleak and nihilistic it is. Is for this two hundred million dollars science fiction and blockbuster. That's there's something worth treasuring in that. I think. Yeah. Also, Michael Fassbender's David is one of my favorite char- fictional characters of the decade. Yep. With the God complex he has, and just that whole movie is a different kind of mean, and I love it. All right, back to Under the Silver Lake. I just realized we are almost thirty minutes into recording. We haven't even summed up the story. Like, what's the basic <laughs> premise yet? I guess that's the nature. There's just so much to unpack with this. Film. Such as the nature with podcast, we may we meander and linger on the stuff that you know, that we value in our minds, but not the stuff that might not actually be important. Well, how could you sum up the plot, Jack? Well, the st- the premise is simple. It's about this slacker in LA named Sam, or Sam where uh, he, he has this chance encounter with a with a beautiful. I don't think they ever established if it's just a model or an actress, or maybe she's just new in town. Just his neighbor. neighbor. Yeah, just a neighbor neighbor named Sarah. Sarah. One night they 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 hang out, but they hang out by the pool. They smoke a joint. You know, I watched some old Marilyn Monroe movie, mm-hmm. movies, and then the next morning, she's gone. Like, completely disappeared. Like, her stuff, her stuff's gone. And he, and he goes on this desperate quest in vain just to find her. And along the way, he just gets wrapped up in all his conspir- conspiracies and stuff like secret codes. And he um, uncovers a grand conspiracy, like, going on in the town. Well, conspiracies, because I'm... Yes. That's several, the thing about a lot of film noirs that I remember it, during the filming of the Big Sleep, like they had to keep charts of the story on hand because no one remembered. That's rem- awesome. Because no one remembered if they actually added up, which it does. It just it's incredibly complicated. That's the case with a lot of big noirs. Is that the thing? The best approach that I can take to anyone who's new to film noir is leave the plot out the door. Not don't pretend it matters, but don't make that your uh, primary hang up. Hang up. Watch it for the characters. Watch it for the wor- the world and everything in between. The plot is more uh, secondary. Are you concerned? And this this film does a great job of building the yeah. world of like the bleak. There is um, a, sto- a story, or at least a character arc. Like, yes, there is. Yeah, just him. Basically, it's. I think it's the best way I can sum this up is it's like what if you smash Scott Pilgrim and Body Double into the same movie, only only you don't ha- actually ha- have Sam get a happy ending at the end because he's kicked out of his apartment. That girl, or he's he realizes, oh wait, I built up all these expectations for a girl I only knew for like a few hours. Hours and that I'll never see her. Yeah, because her she again ends up, up like in a yeah in an underground bunker <laughs> that somehow is able to make video calls through like suitcases with phones. I'm not sure if any of this works in context, by the way. The way, or well, I mean, it works, but it's hard, but it's difficult to explain she even ends if you up know like what, what's going on. Pilling herself. Does she kill herself at the end? I don't remember. Yeah. I remember she well, just the, she just lives there and just says goodbye. 
they, she said that they're gonna live there for like six months, and then kill themselves. Oh, it's like a, oh, like the Helter Skelter Manson thing. Yeah, they're gonna live huh. underground. Like they, never lived they have like real. six months. Like, well, I'm down here anyway. Months. I might as well just do what I can. Yeah, worth of food, and they're gonna just party down there, and then you know, kill themselves. Oof. Yeah, there is a lot of darkness, but a lot of it's linger. Which is, I'm kind of baffled by the trailers because it's not dishonest, but it's also not entirely selling you the right movie to where I can get why someone would be, feel like lied to by the, Because yeah. the trailer sells it as co- basically a comedy, which there's a lot of this movie that I find absolutely hilarious. Oh, there's like, a lot of it's screamingly funny at points. I mean, like, just the whole bit with the musician, the old musician dude, which is one of my favorite scenes in the last few years. The uh, songwriter? Uh, yeah, the songwriter. The one I found that scene terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying, and I think it goes back and forth between the two. Yeah. Who, like, just, I think it builds up to, <laughs> like, just the way Andrew, Gar- where, like, when he pulls out that pistol and Andrew Garfield just, like, flails his arms and just, like, hot. I, I think that's funny. Funny, but it ends on a way where and, it kind of almost feels like a Sam Raimi, I mean, like a late 80s Sam Raimi movie, I mean, a movie the way it where he goes back and forth between the two tones. The way, like, the guy smashes his head in with a guitar. I mean, yeah. I think... I wonder if the makeup is supposed to look fake, though. Like, it's clear that this is not going yeah. to add a level of unreality to it. Speaking of um, Andrew Garfield's mannerisms, yeah. they're very distinct in this film. Yeah. I mean, just the way he, like, lingers and, like, stares at things. Kind of like the way he, like, flinches. The guy looks like he desperately needs a shower. Yeah. <laughs> and he smells throughout the film. Yeah, so oh, God, like, the skunk. Oh, yeah, the <laughs> skunk. The, the bit with the, everyone seen the trailer. Where the trailer is where he's talking to uh, Ricky Lindholm. Right home about all the conspiracy scares he's talking about, and then eventually he just like stops as the music building, and then it just pop. Where like let's go, go, and he just gets this awkward stare. And he's like, "Oh, you think that's weird?" Yeah, <laughs> a little. <laughs> that that might be the whole movie in a nutshell. Michelle is just yes. you getting so absorbed in your own head, head to where you just can't, you just lose touch with reality. I mean, which, that's probably the thesis of this film. Yeah, I think I it is such a. I think it's gonna have a place on a lot of best of decade lists. Oh, absolutely. It should, it should at least, because I do think it is, embodies a lot of things about our time. Now, not in a way that's pretend, or pretentious, but in a way a that's honest. It's yeah. honest. Honestly bleak, yes. I mean, it's a little a little brutally honest, but it's still... I wouldn't argue it's bleak, but it is definitely dark. Right, well, dark and yeah. Dark. He's got... I get a feeling... Bleak might be too far. Yeah, bleak. It's not It's not Miller's Crossing or something. No, it's, it's not... Uh, or a sallow. It's, it's brutally honest of the, the nihilism, you know. Or a modern day cult. Yeah. And the lack of, of the fact that we don't really can't find any meaning in anything. Yeah, which, the lack of meaning. That reminds me, going back to the music, the, the this doesn't have a big soundtrack. Like, there's only like three song. Well, there's five songs in total, two of which were made for the film. Film one, one by the fake, the fake rock band I mentioned. R.E.M. Really. Oh yeah, the two R.E.M. tracks. Which oh my god, this movie's R.E.M. The reason is, I'm obsessed with What's the Frequency, Kenneth. That is such a good song. R.E.M. is amazing. Yeah, the, the my way my parents they, actually went to college with him. Really? I yes. Remember, in a University remember, uh, of Georgia. My brother had a friend who actually got a flight with Michael Stipe. Nice. The lead, Michael Stipe was actually a producer, by the way, a film producer. Oh, really? He produced Being John Malkovich. I remember watching it like. Wow. Wait, what? I can look it up. Yeah, it's that Michael Stipe. Yeah, but that's in. That is interesting. That'd be funny if he was a producer on this. That'd be fun. He isn't, but I mean, I'm like, yeah, this may, it would make sense. I mean, Mitchell's clearly an REM fan. Oh yeah, I, mean, th- I remember uh, hearing someone t- talk about this. Like, this is like a, a whole movie's like a breakup record, <laughs> which you can see it that that way. I I think the use of the REM songs is because both of which are uh, taken off the same album, uh, Monster, which that album cover is t- amazing. Oh, I mean, just so like the good. orange with that black, with that black cat, like cat looking face. Looking cat, yeah. Speaking yeah, of the mon- way, 
Oh wait, sorry. No, you go, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say the way the reason I like it so much is the way it's you. Because both of which are songs like confusing and not being able to get a hold on communication, in which I think both of which are smart. Like the, the way they use uh, what's the frequency count of them particular, and yes. that dates it, which I'm still baffled how anyone dances with that song. That's always stuck me as like a headbang type thing. Yeah. Well, the like, first time I watched this film, um, I did have the subtitles on, which I don't yep. don't normally do, but it showed the lyrics of the song. Yep. It was like, I've studied your cartoons, radio, music, TV, TV news, magazine. Like, which he, Sam, yep. was doing. I couldn't, I couldn't understand. You know what that title is a reference to, right? What's the frequency, Kenneth? It's uh, like someone went AWOL. On, uh, yeah, on a public... Yeah, anyway, so... Which is awesome. There's this. There was this old show in the 80s that you've seen it if you've seen GIFs or Mean Culture, or at least the the music video for uh, Rap God by Eminem. It's Max Headroom, and... Uh, there was this dude who, uh, on some, I think it was a UHF station in Chicago, in Chicago or somewhere in Illinois, where, where uh, he was wearing a Max Headroom mask and he just rants incoherent, or incoherently, and like I don't think there's a proper translation of it. No, he says, at one like, point, what's the frequency? Well, yes, what, that's one of the frequency. Kind of? And at one point, he like moves, shows his ass to the camera, and then <laughs> the signal comes out. No one knows who pulled that to this day. It's one of those unsolved mysteries. I think. But I anyway, think, speaking of monster, think, yeah, the, the album. album. There is a monster in this film, the uh, owl. Oh god, the owl. There's multiple monsters. Like the dog. There's the dog killer. There's the uh, owl lady, the homeless king, arguably, arguably the whole cult at Serapol, and with, with the mute, or the songwriter from earlier, which god, the amount of rights they had to clear for that is just making my head spin. I mean, just like with the yeah, with the music, I the, the owl lady. That the one that thing that plays. Out of me. I mean. I want to say that I do think the, the darkness in this movie does get over, overplayed, but certain scenes, it is straight up horror. The owl yes. like just the way it's shot with the light, I mean, lightning, and the fact the, that he's trapping this other guy's home, like the guy who writes the under the silver lake zine. Yes. That he gets, he meets with him in like this little bunk, this like crawl space, like bunk, where he's just watching the security cameras, and you can't even tell if what he's seeing is in his own head. Or, and you see the owl lady. It's legitimately suspenseful. Like I was like, yeah, I really especially watching this late, late at night is such a perfect. I really time. enjoy the um. Like the the illustrated animations. Oh yeah, the that. animations. Are, I like when they do that. I mean, yes, yeah, for, and, it, and it, it was real integrated really just well. Just enough. Yep. There's the effects in this movie are really good, good too. Like except for one thing, bit where uh, it's the scene where he's in that uh, there's there's a news reporter earlier in the movie where they mentioned that an actress has been kidnapped, right, kidnapped or the daughter of some rich dude. Right, dude. Uh, he Andrew, one one thing leads to another. Andrew Garfield finds him and they try to avoid some sort of hired guns or something. Police, FBI. FBI, I don't know what they are, but point is they shoot and kill her, but she drowns, but it's obviously a CGI. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell if that's designed to look uncanny Mally or not, but it does kind of... And that seems, something wrong. It feels tragic. It, it, there, just a lot of this movie that feels tra- tragic, but quite, some more, more, more uh, understated than ours. I remember, I can go back to Inherent Vice for a moment. The one, there are definitely a lot of parallels to draw from that. Right, from this, the usually, the gr- right, no, girl shows up, gives... Presents a scenario and he has to go around LA looking for her, but I think there's a lot of things. And then uncovers a grand conspiracy. Yeah, I argue the main difference between the movie is the pers- not just time period, because obviously early se- 70s LA is a lot different than uh, late 2010s LA. A lot happier. Yeah, well, debatably, because that was still that was I mean, still like, before during the time where Vietnam was on the verge of ending and Watergate was two years out. So not a and I remember well, the general cultural perception of the seventies is that it feels like a giant hangover. I mean, That's we, why a lot of we definitely system. glorify the past now. Oh, definitely. Really, the fact. Like I would have been such an eighties girl. Like if you thought about the AIDS crisis, you know, <laughs> a lot of the stuff, or the, ch- the amount of children getting kidnapped at the time, or like actual things that were on people's mind outside, or inside of Michael Jackson and Debo. Anyway, the thing. 
that is a theme with an improvise, which we will do an episode on because speaking uh, yeah. of neo noirs, I can write it. We're gonna write about it for hours. How many times have you seen Inherent Vice? Four now. I actually watched it twice within within a twenty four hour period. Nice. I I've it only my, seen it once. I showed it to my mom once, and oh really? I, yeah, there's one part I, I skipped because was it like when he um when he and she has to have sex on the couch? Yeah, like, I had to skip that because like forceful. Uh, yeah, well, not forceful. It's just more awkward and kind of sad. Yeah. But, <laughs> Right, but I'm like, my mom, she didn't get it, but you're like, okay, I get why you like. Yes. She didn't hate it like she hated the art of self-defense, which I was still baffled. But I took my family to see that at the Elmo Draft House, and they were... For a movie that made them out that hard, I'm shocked they walked away like hating like, the, yeah. That's how my family is when I show them movies. Yeah, weird movies stuff. I like, they're like, yeah, I they're, don't really get it or like it, but I, I don't see get why you might like they, it. Sometimes they don't get There's yeah, a lot of times yeah. where they don't get it, and they're just like, whatever. Or they're like, they, they just don't... Although she loved, she liked Dead Man though. Like it. Really? Yeah, she did. My dad did not really like it. He, my dad, he did you know, not get my it. My dad didn't watch. My dad didn't watch it, but he, I did show him the. He's a huge Neil Young fan, and he did the score oh, for nice. that, in that movie. So I showed, I thought he'd too. like uh, some of the right the behind the scenes studio session and footage that he did. Yeah, and he was like, yeah, thank you. Bro. I like being this kind of uh, cultural oracle to my family and friends, <laughs> and to an extent you. Yes. This is I mean, I, I feel yeah. like I'm. Slowly yep. becoming one of those. Anyway, two. back to what I was saying about the link between this inherent vice. Ultimately, the difference between the two movies co- comes in a difference in perspective. Not just the fact that Doc, I mean, Doc's uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character in uh, Inherent Vice is a lot is considerably older because he's an aging hippie type. Yeah. Yeah, you know, type, but also because it's a much ultimately a much more optimistic film. You know, I'm acknowledging yes, the world at large sucks, but there's very little we can do do about it. But we are, are in control of our own problems problems and how we handle other people so it's best to do right by them now on the other hand under the silver lake is complete not completely nihilistic but a lot more cynical and pessimistic like yeah I would, it I would, would probably look at that kind of statement and go like yeah i don't think so this ain't it chief i would go as far to say <coughs> nihilistic definitely that kind uh, of, no i argue i'd argue there it does say there's meaning and think well nihilistic yeah. is a complete nihilism is a complete rejection of meaning which is why i think it's so frivolous as an ideology Gee, this says we have, there are things that are meaningful, but we're just putting, we're, we put too much meaning and emphasis on the wrong things in life. And not in a puritanical way, but more, more like sort your own life out. Now, it's uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck away, which I actually started reading that. That's a re- It's pretty good, yeah. Yeah, it, it's great. I've read, I'm like, like how did the not, first half. Although the weird thing is, I remember whenever I read books, uh, I always have this voice in my head. For, for some reason, the voice that I have for this book is the Ewan McGregor's American accent from uh, Doctor Sleep. <laughs> That's funny. I'm so excited to see what he does as Black Mask and Birds of Prey because that movie looks like what if they turned True Romance into a comic book flick? Only they had Gary Oldman's dress. Is he dress. McGregor in it? Yeah, he is. He's Black oh. Mask. And, oh, nice. With, and oh god, the costume. With, he looks like he's having a ball. Woo! Who's having a good time? We should Just see that. that. Oh yeah, I am planning actually seeing it on an opening night. Well, okay. not opening the night after because I got to set. I got to be on set all that day. Yeah. I mean, except for 5 p.m., which that should be fun. Should be fun. Film school. Not gonna go into why because confidentiality and NDAs and that I don't like to spoil people's fun. You know, Under the Silver Lake, I do. Th- it reminds me. It feels kind of perfect that it came out around the same time as Joker. That I I've heard compare so, a couple of comparisons, not too many, not as many as to Southland Tales or Inherent Vice or Vertigo or Mulholland Drive or a few other things. things but, compared to Joker. Yeah, and the way it treats like incel incels and like what. Yeah. Or quote unquote white male rage. <laughs> like I do think it, here's the thing. I do think we should be talking about ideas like toxic masculinity. But I think I remember there was an interview with uh, Marielle Heller, the woman who made uh, once a beautiful day in the neighborhood. 
She's like, I mean, like, I want to make movies about men that are soft and gentle, but I mean, it helps solve it. She's like this, but I want to show them how to be other men instead of just criticize them, which I think is a very productive way of looking at it. But I also, I also acknowledge the value of stuff like this, where it points out the value, the, the negativity of it all, and just, I think the difference between this and Joker is one, this has more, it, this has more to say and more on my old Joker. Yes, well, it's a movie I like, but it is very clearly we live in a society. The movie, they're both. It is a very society. shallow. It is a very shallow movie. And it's, yeah, there's, there's not much... It, it says things, but it doesn't have a lot of deeper thoughts about exactly. them. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Although it is kind of weird to see that, that movie become kind of a symbol, like, protest. Which... Like I Venezuela, I think. Which, oh, really? Which kind of deconstructs the whole white, white male rage argument. Because considering a universal... More it's like oddly anarchist. universal, because I did not expect it to have this kind of impact. Yeah. Which I appreciate. Um, I, I don't know how yeah. I feel about it being an anarchy symbol, though. Yeah. The movie I do think, I think, although there is one line from it that I think perfectly encapsulates this whole nihilistic bet that the Joker's been taking since the killing joke back in the late 80s, is it's the, I don't believe in anything, I just thought it'd be funny. Mm-hmm. I think that sums up, which, I'm you getting, here's the thing, the Joker is one of my favorite characters, period. Yeah, but I'm, I agree, Sam. I'm annoyed, I'm kind of annoyed that this is all we can do with him that, I mean, yeah. nowadays is the whole, it gets old and that's why I've ne- kind of fallen out of favor with Heath Ledger's. Brilliant performance to be sure, but I'm no, kind of tired of seeing it everywhere and being I mean, reduced to nothing. Like the idea of people using like actual quotes from this just makes me roll my eyes. So it's like when, when like dude bros use quotes from like Scarface or Fight Club or yeah. now Rick and Morty. Yeah, yeah. Although there is one I mean, quote. There's only one quote from Rick that I actually would, would bother to use in an argument. Your booze mean nothing for I've seen what makes you cheer. That is the only thing. Other than that, it's complete nihilistic, smug, obsessed with your own bullshit reasoning. Or, uh, like, nothing matters, let's go yeah. watch TV. Which, eh, maybe. Yeah. Because I think the problem is, yes, the universe has no inherent meaning, meaning, but it's the, the reason we survive and we keep doing is because we make up our own meaning and that's what's important. I bet that Mitchell is a fan of Rick and Morty. Probably. Like, who isn't these days? Yeah. I mean, it's a great show. I mean, yeah, but it's also obscenely popular. I mean, popular to where, to where to being its... a fan of it is not really surprised. And it's kind of obnoxious. Yeah, mo- that's good. that's bound to happen with anything that's overexposed. That's just yeah. dumb. Yeah. Because there is media we overdigest. Like Ghostbusters is definitely a big case of this. Yeah. Um. What else? Like that's... the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Obviously, which oh god, every it's story. Gone I, every story I've been reading about that Doctor Strange sequel ever since Scott Derrickson left the project has just made my mom. Uh, it makes me. I mean, feel like I'm getting a brain aneurysm. Is it going to be a horror film? Nope, not anymore. Oh my gosh. Apparently. Well, even though the the title is still a Lovecraft reference, it's like, hey, let's jam all this art stuff. Here's the thing. It's not even like it's other magic users to where it's... Just make a Doctor Strange movie. You can make cool stuff with it. Look at the original Steve Ditko and Jim Steranko and all those psychedelic art from the 60s. Make a movie like that. Now get someone with like, an experimental vision. Like, you can still make an action movie and it'll still make money. Money, but do be, get creative with it. Then make it, make a Doctor Strange movie, or a movie, and actually take some risk. Have a set of balls. It's probably just gonna be another Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's probably just gonna be so with like witty comedy. And Here's the thing, I love, I like horror. what they do. Here's the thing, they shown they can do Doctor Strange right with the first one, yeah. one because they got the, the way they did the Dark Dimension was perfect. I, do, I have no problems. I mean, like you can make these movies look colorful and fun. Fun and the thing is, now they got the origin out of the way. You can do so much with this character. I mean, character. I remember. Reminds me of. Actually, I remember when I saw fake posters for like, what if old, old classic Hollywood filmmakers or and actors did superhero movies like 
One I saw was like a Doctor Strange movie directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, direct, <laughs> starring David Bowie. Like that would be. God, awesome. I wish that was real. That would be amazing. I want someone like like this will never happen because the vision. Someone like Panos Cosmatos doing uh, Doctor Strange. That especially after Mandy, that would be that'd be a head trip right there. Anyways, back to Under the Silver Lake, yeah. which you know, oof, we're already running at forty-five minutes. I mean, it's probably gonna be shorter because we're probably gonna cut a few things out here and there. Maybe some white noise, maybe adds a few other things, but yeah, we've been we've been talking, but almost longer than both episodes we've recorded up to well now combined. <laughs> it's kind of fun. How do you feel about uh, the ending? I'm, you know, I'm I'm fine with the end. I mean, I'm kind of glad. Actually, it reminds me of going back to the REM stuff, which I think that's probably the best needle drop in the whole movie is the way it ends on Strange Currencies because it's about, about the song itself. If you pay attention to the lyric, the lyrics is about how he's when this guy is just confused, but. Or by mixed signals and a breakup he's got, he's went through with his girlfriend, or a friend, how he feels hurt but just more, more or less confused and directionless. Yeah. I think it's a perfect, it, thematically it's something. It does. And it, oh, that's a, it's that's such a, a great, good note to end the movie on. It's a great on, last shot too. Oh okay. yeah, it's the is it the one of the wall with the little symbol that means keep quiet or something? That's the second to last. It, it's the one where it looks back at him through the blinds and he's like has his shirt off after having sex with a bird lady. Oh God, right. Just. <laughs> Yes. Even this made me look at it like, oh Jesus! Just oh. Watching him masturbate, like, that, there's, there's several scenes of him oh, just yeah. masturbating. Well, not that many, Whatever. but it, the way like, it's not less the scenes, more than the, one. The amount of scenes, more like the way it's you know, yes, like it's intense. Like, like it feels, it, it feels like, like something scenes. you shouldn't be seeing. Yeah, we're like watching someone. Like it's way too in. It's like there's a. Re I think distance is good for people. No relation. Sorry to get off right out of telling the real life stuff, but. There's a reason that we don't know so about people. It's fine not to know everything about them because yes, because we'll, that change. We'll think it changes um, it for the work. Like oh wait, it'll change the way we think of them for the work. Case yeah. in point, and so we seeing we, someone too close. Maybe there is a good thing about not seeing so someone completely. We slowly start to feel um, like yeah. more. Or we, there is a difference between being outright dishonest. But I mean, yeah. But we, which we, speaking we of feel, A24, we start to feel A24 less movies. Uncut Sam's Gems, character. I think, explores this like the way we we think we know we know someone. One, I think I remember the Sathy Bros in an interview. They said and they wrote the movie as what if the I mean, what if Goodfellas took place in, I mean, from the perspective of the dude who owned that hair salon on, or that records I mean, store who's constantly getting pressured by mob money. I mean, just how stressful and panic-inducing it would be to be that one guy just like bouncing around from place to place. Which I think Uncut Gems is also going to be one of the best movies of the decade in terms of its its place in the uh, time place, I mean, but also I mean, so just how unique it feels as a crime. Because I can't say I've ever seen a crime movie like Uncut Gem. Like the, as in, it doesn't shock me at all that the Safety Brothers are fans of stuff like After Hours. By the way, uh, around the guy in Good Time came out, they were announced to do a remake of 48 Hours, the but the my probably my favorite buddy cop movie, and I couldn't imagine two better talents that I, I hope they're still making that because that would be amazing. And they said they're gonna try and play fast and loose with the premise and do something more modern with it, which makes me even more excited because that's what a remake should be. It should be a reimagining. Which. Like, for better or for worse, Rob Zombie's version of the Halloween movies, which, love them or hate them, they're interesting. Especially yeah. Halloween 2, which, wow, there's some weird stuff in that. <coughs> Sorry about the coughing. I've, I've had, like, a cold for a couple days. No, it's all good. I do love the um, scenes in this film where yep. he's, like, trying yeah. to The um, camera work, too. Where he's trying to code all the, yeah. these conspiracies. Oh, yeah, the way, the way, the way his, like, apartment gets littered... And then yeah. even his one friend, uh, Tupper Grace, who only gets credited as man at bar. I like how, all right, he, uh -huh. 
I like how Andrew Garfield and Riley Keough are the only people credited with, like, proper character names, and the rest are isn't very entirely descriptive, like, the homeless ki king, or Man at Bar, or, or actress. The, the actress, or... Yeah. <coughs> I remember... I do think... Do you think there's any, like, hints of, like, a fantasy world, like, the fact that when he goes to that party on the rooftop, he's like, welcome to purgatory? Yeah. I mean, like, the... Yeah, like, maybe... I don't... Maybe that's just, again, reaching too deep. I think there's stuff like that that, that is intentionally le really left. Just, okay, it puts it out on the table and doesn't mention it. Which, any other ca case would probably be the sign of a bad movie, because that... And, like, the chess parties. It's like Chekhov... I say this because of the... You know the Chekhov's gun quote, right? The, if you put a gun on stage, you better well go off. Yes. Yeah, like, if you yes. set something up, you had to pay it off. Oh, but I'm like, I'm fine with that, as long as it's done in, the, in a way that's smart, like this. Like, it's okay to break the rules, just do it with good reason, and I think this movie has plenty. I got... How many notes did you take? Like, I remember... This is probably the most I've seen from you. You, like, you filled an entire page. I... Almost well, over. half of these notes are just movies I've heard you talk about that. Yeah, you you're general. like writing out what yeah, stuff yeah. to put on the watch list. Like, okay, I'll add that to the queue. Okay, remember we talked about that. I remember. What oh, else yeah. do you want to talk about? I think this is a movie. Here's the thing. I think this is a movie about you because Dan Robert Mitchell at least has to be a start. Thirty, so I'm not sure he's quite. He's probably more of a Gen Xer than a millennial, but I think the two generations are so similar in terms of their cultural place because they're people who never really were given the sense of responsibility. Nobody can. Or considering how they grew up post World War Two, post Korea, post Vietnam, no, I'm like our dad, our parents accomplished this. What the fuck are we gonna do? Yeah. Gen well said. Which some people would argue millennials have it easier than Gen Xers because the general consent. If the general consensus of millennials is that they're lazy, the general consensus of Gen Xers, what I've heard is that they were fucking idiots. <laughs> Which, what maybe is why Beavis and Butthead rank such a core. By the way, Beavis and Butthead still holds up, and I think is a little smarter than. Just because something is about people who are stupid or disreputable does not mean the product in question is... It's like when people, again, going back to Joker, say, say just because something depicts, like, horrible behavior... Or amoral behavior is in... No, not an indictment, because that... Which sometimes, it, most more often it is, an endorsement of... Depiction does not equal endorsement. And not, that's how it is for this film as yep. well. People oh, God. It. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, the fact that he, he constantly is shown... Borderline psychotic, and I think there's part, I mean, there's theories that about that he might be the dog killer. That, oh, that really? Eagle, Eagle. About considering how he always has the little when he sees uh, Coca Cola, uh, gives him a little treat during the beginning. Of the fact I mean, that they generally have serious physical physiques, and then I mean, yeah, he never really hurts. But the sketchy way he acts about it, that's may a maybe a very big maybe. I, I, I it could I don't it's see probably it, a reach. I mean, yeah, it's a. I like that the dog killer. Is yeah. there like just the, 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 the mythos of this film? Yeah. Is that is the thing? Uh, this the LA in this movie. I talked about how LA and Vegas are similar in a lot of ways. You know, I obviously spent more time in Vegas because that's where I grew up. This is a world that I've always heard hear, hear say about because like the world of zines and coffee shops and rooftop screenings on sixteen millimeter, like yeah. that kind of hipster, hipster paradise. I just always think I've heard from podcasts and like sixteen drives and Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I just. I've never been to LA, so all I've seen. I've been to. I've never been, spent more than a week in LA. I've never been to California in general, but all that I've seen of California I don't, has been through film. We're pro yeah, a lot of it is just through secondhand. Yeah. Of, as an observer, not a direct participant. And for the most part, glorified. Oh, definitely glorified. A lot of things are glorified about LA and California in general. Like, I'm not sure if I really want to live in San Francisco just because of the traffic and the amount of pollution. Yeah. Supposedly, they get the smog from like China. I wanted to go. Actually, uh, I probably mentioned this earlier, but I'm not sure how. Considering how long we've been running this for, I don't remember how in depth we got went into 
or David Robert Mitchell in terms of how I think he does have a real a really unique voice in terms of the, because the way he re handles story about young people or young people is that he gets or the state of mind the constant not only the state of of months that you feel the fears the anxiety or the anxieties the way or the way we process the world the way we find our comforts the way we I think that's kind of fascinating and we're talking about yeah I mean he he does that. He shows that well through yeah. Sam's character. Yeah, I mean, that these are people obsessed with with relatively old media, media, but they're still of their time in terms of attitude and perspective. It was in fashion state. Mm -hmm. Like I know, I know people at this college that look like Sam. <laughs> in this, yep, or or any of the other people in this. Like, I feel like Sam at times. I, I think do, we all do. I do. Too. Like even though we don't want to admit it, but yes, sometimes we do. Yes. Sometimes better. Like I'm never gonna punch a kid just because they car key they uh, did gr sketch graffiti with uh, keys in my car. I mean, I'm not gonna. I would definitely consider it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, pro I mean, I'd probably do moment, something, but I wouldn't actually someone, like attack them. If someone I wouldn't go that far. If someone graffitied your car yeah. and pit, pissed on it, the kid also pisses on. Oh the god! Oh god! I forgot about that. Okay. I mean, there's did, so much did little the, thing. Did the key or did the kids seem like drunk? I mean, I think the kids are only like 13. Yeah, they're they were young, but like they were like for some reason they they appeared to be drunk. Yeah, pro maybe who knows. But like that scene has nothing to do with it. Oh whatsoever. yeah, there's a lot of plays that go nowhere, but not a, in a way it, that's it both fits. deliberately frustrating but fits with the, t you know, like because yeah, and not in the general that meaningless. Oh, that's the entire point. But there's where they ask why why is this meaning meaningless, which is why I don't get into a lot of mumblecore stuff. I'm like, oh, it's just everyday life, like. Okay, fine. Realism is nice, but you have to have a broader point to make, or at least something else. Else, yeah. like have something underneath it. You, you got a decent foundation. Now build something on that foundation. Let's see. Got. Oh yeah. Also, just a little bit of a geeky thing about the soundtrack. Uh, the song they used to open is a song I loved in high school. Uh, Never my love by the Association. Which isn't mere. Is it weird that West that hasn't shown up in like a Wes Anderson movie yet? Cause that sounds like something that should be in like the Life Aquatic or the Royal Tenenbaums. I like how it would fit that. It would fit that vibe so well. I like how Wes Anderson deals with music um, yeah. in his films, like all the all Life Aquatic. That's the movie that, that and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy coming out. I've see, I saw that I mean, those two at the relatively the same time, and that's the movie that got me obsessed with. Both of those are why I was so obsessed with Bowie in high school. Why I'm still obsessed with Bo in Bowie's music with now. It, with Wes Anderson, he'll have songs from only one artist. I, mean, um, I remember the beat. It's the Beach Boys. It's place. mostly the Beach Boys and Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's Dave Bowie and the Life Aquatic. This, is there, it's the um, who? What are it? Because I haven't um, seen World Ten Bombs. Darjeeling Limited. It's uh, Darjeeling. Darjeeling. That is such a really? hard. Uh, that is such a hard uh, word to say. I mean, yes, the Dar Darjeeling. 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 Um, it's only the Kinks. Oh, it is nice. Mm -hmm. I'm. I still got to catch up with some. I'm like. Did you hear Grand Boots Best Hotel is finally getting in the, in the criterion, which, yeah, that's nice. Yes. I mean, they love Wes Anderson. Yeah, there's a there's a certain movie they just added uh, back in December that we will that I that I've wanted to see for five years now. Now, but I'm making it a priority because of the podcast. Yeah, because I think it fits the bill. But I mean, this science fiction epic that still uses music from like YouTube, Brian Eno and the Talking Heads, starring William Hurt, called Until the End of the World. It's quote unquote the ultimate road movie, and it runs over four hours, and not in the artsy empire where nothing happening, but more uh, let's when it gives you a span like it feels like an epic, yeah. like it seems like something that is exactly one hundred percent my kind of thing.
Yes. Like, I really... I finally checked out Wings of Desire, the the film The Inventors in the Late 80s about an angel, which there's it has one of my favorite... Sh it's a movie that I'm still not my favorite of his, but there's one of my favorite... Shot in there that's so lovely. You know, just him, of just him standing on that roof on top of the. I think it's like a bird or a gargoyle statue or something. Just him looking over the city. It's such an atmospheric shot. It's just wow. You could you could write an entire paper just on that image. There's several shots like this in oh, this yeah. film as well. Oh yeah, too. Oh yeah, totally. Who was the cinematographer? Mike Galikis, I think. Is it. He also shot a uh, Split in Glass for a Night Shyamalan. He also shot a uh, It It Falls for David Robert Mitchell. He also just shot us for Jordan Peele. Really? Yeah, but like the guys found way of getting around, which is good because the guy is so skilled at it. I mean, I, I he's one of my he's one of my favorite DP. He's up and coming right now. I can't wait to see what he does next. I can, I can see his style throughout those. Yeah, ones like, that you just listed. Yeah, I think I think the guy has a knack for making eh, making relatively mundane locations not only interesting but not in a way that's super stylized, but more like engaging in a way that's minimalist thriller. Like Glass is a movie that is in a pretty mundane location. But he always finds constantly interesting ways to shoot with the lighting and the color. God, the use of color, which is incredibly on the nose because I'm like Shyamalan, but still, but still, it's interesting. So, would would you say this is the best movie of last year? Yes. Because I well, I would too. Definitely my it's all, favorite. It's for me. It's a toss up between this and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Really? It was. Yep. It's probably this though because I mean because it stuck me longer. I'm like, okay, yeah, people need to see this. Yes, so I'm this film. I'm gonna run to the hills. Reson I it's a very polar intentionally so like if you don't like this movie I will completely understand because yes. it's it will just roll off some people. It's not gonna be for everyone. Yep, and not the device love. Well, I I'm gonna be honest. Yeah, it's exactly in the device of love or hate because even in the user reviews you can see like five star, one star, five star, five star, one star, one star. I mean, star just like I mean, usually very little in between. Yep. That's how it usually is with the films I like. Yeah. Um, I, I, feel like I feel like it's made I, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the right movie hits you. There are like yes. a handful of films that hit you that way. Guardians of the Galaxy when I first saw Then again, I was 14. Yeah. Like, I wish the rest of the MCU was that much fun. It was mm. that much fun without Rich Clever. Like, Guardians 2 is the only Marvel movie that's made me, like, cry, like, in nice. like, an extreme emotional reaction. I mean, because I just think of my dad when I think of that movie. I'm looking forward to uh, the James Gunn Suicide Squad. Oh, absolutely. That's... Especially after Birds of Prey, which, yeah. oh my god, that's going to be so much fun. Which, I'm... Here's the thing that makes me excited about it over the first one, is because it seems like he gets it, and people, like, I remember fellow DC fan, fans were like, oh no, he's going to make it light and camp. like, have you watched James Gunn's stuff before he did Guardians of the Galaxy? This is the guy who wrote Tromeo and Juliet. Yeah, the starter was his work with Lloyd Kaufman and the guys who made The Toxic Avenger. He wrote Slither. Run directed Slither. He made Super, a movie where he, where the Dwight from the Office becomes the Punisher and bludgeons people with a pipe wrench just for cutting in line. He can do dark and nasty, and he can do it really well, which is why I was so excited for him doing that, and the, which is why I was actually happy with that cast announcement, how big it is, and the little don't get too attached teaser, which is cute. It's like, oh, what, what can we do with this? But the thing about Suicide Squad is. How the suspense comes from anyone can die at any mo moment because it's not the Avengers. It's Escape from New York crossed with the Dirty Dozen, is the ideal Suicide Squad movie in my book. What does it, David Robert Mitchell have coming up? I know he was. I think he, he was writing a horror movie about a, sa a killer sound. I don't remember the title. I want to look it up really quick. He isn't directing though. It's someone else. Sorry, my mind is slim. Blank. I I stayed up till like three a.m. writing on a typewriter last night, which. Art school and body in the nutshell. <laughs> oh, right there. Yeah. 
Okay, let's see here. Letterbox is taking forever to load. I really hate how much it glitches sometimes, but whatever. I feel, have you, have you gone full art school, Jack? With buying your typewriter? I mean, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I, I definitely I, feel like I've gone full art school. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. It's yeah. a, it's got, okay, here it is. It's called They Hear It. I mean, it's about a mysterious sound, sound. It sounds like what if the happening was good, kind <laughs> of. Uh, like, it's about, because sound actually does, that's not like the kind of thing that could be made, or be made uh, scary in a film. Like, the happening, I remember someone posing, like, if that was just like a radio play, all of the Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast, mm. or in broadcast, that would act, maybe that it could work. I mean, it could work, but as a film where you actually have to have visual, well, it just, it falls apart. Yeah, some, some things aren't transferable. Yeah, like, a lot of Lovecraft adaptations are this way, too. Because how do you visualize oh, yeah. something that is de I mean, deliberately impossible to visualize? Have you like, read saying, any of his books? Um, I I know Cthulhu mostly because of the meme, or the, the meme. meme surrounding it. <laughs> I read uh, Call of Cthulhu this summer. Actually, I think it I was fantastic. I'm excited for Richard Stanley's Colorado Space adaptation, the one he's doing with Nicolas Cage. Is oh my god, that looks insane! It's nice to have Richard Stanley back because the guy was an interesting director before the whole mess with the uh, Island of Doctor Moreau happened, which. God, that was such a disaster that they made a whole documentary out of it. Uh, Lost Soul, that is absolutely worth it. I checked out a movie he did back in the early 90s called Hardware, which Iggy Pop, fun thing, we talked about Repo Man in the first episode and how Iggy Pop his, uh, theme plays a big part in it. There's also a... There's also... He's also a presence of more um, figure... Literal in uh, Hardware, where he's the radio DJ, the sarcastic radio DJ, where there's a line out of his mouth where he's like, the good news? There is no fucking good news! In Repo Man? Not Repo Man, uh, Hardware. Okay. Yeah, but it's one of the most cyberpunk things ever. It's not a great movie, but I have a I have a soft spot for it. It's cool. And Iggy Pop also plays a role in Dead Man. Yeah, oh right, he is. The part with the, where, he has, where he's in a dress with, with those old, like, wiry spectacles for some reason. Which is pretty funny. And there we are, have it. We've broken an hour. <laughs> wow. Nice. It's nice. I, mean, I, think, I think we're finally getting into the groove. Yes. Uh, this I, podcast. I what else have you seen lately that we can recommend? Like, it doesn't have to be related to the Silver Lake, although it would be cool. That I recommend? Can't say much. I saw being John Malkovich, and I like that. Yeah. Like that, you know. Nice. It's not my favorite thing uh, Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones have done. Well, actually, I watched Shock Corridor. Which... Yeah, oh, yeah, but we're going to be... We, we will be doing an episode on that in a couple weeks. Don't worry. Yeah. Set the, the next episode after uh, the next one. That makes any sense? Don't, I'll promise the next one in a few minutes. We'll probably wrap this up soon because at the time of uh, speaking, we are we have reached one minute and one hour and four minutes of talking. This thing is going to be a nightmare to edit. <laughs> it's going to be a Is this your first experience with Sam Fuller? Like, yes, it was. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go into the context with him because he's a fascinating filmmaker and Loki's become one of my favorites just for, because of his work ethic and the unique history around That'll be an interesting podcast. It's gonna be it's gonna be a great conversation. I can't wait to talk about that. Anyways, back to Under the Silver Lake and uh, general conclusion, which I realized I need to start sticking a bumper at the end of this where we stick our maybe the socials, but also, um, but also you know where we can find us. So, so I'll just do that right now. You can find Warp Celluloid on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Although I need to update the YouTube with the with the video version of our Wizards episode. That is like a week late at this point. I need to get better at the. I need to schedule it, this stuff. The entire episode. No, no. I <laughs> the only way it works is I just get a still from the movie, turn it black and white, and then add like a waveform in front of it, and then boom. 
Yeah. That's how that's how most people do add podcasts on YouTube. I mean, it's still visually dynamic, but you don't have to be put too much into it. I'm gonna um yep. give out my letterbox. Uh, you can find me at letterbox at just search the name Jack Rourke, and uh, you can find him Chandler Williams. Yeah. The nice thing about letterbox. there's no nice thing about searching for people, you know, on there is that you can just find them. Or you can just find them based on a name. You don't have to memorize a key. Anyway, we are not... The podcast itself isn't the most active on social media, but we do have a Twitter, and that would be... I don't have, I can't believe I haven't memorized that handle. Okay, here we go. We are we are just simply at Warped Celluloid. Yep. So, it's not like it's going to be, gonna be too much of a search to find us. Oh, sick. Not, I just read something cool. Cool. Apparently, they're bringing back one of the guys from the first Mission Possible and uh, the next one. Nice. Yeah, but I can't remember what Another the Mission Impossible? Which I'm fine with because these these movies are the thing I've dubbed them the Thinking Man's Fast and Furious, which I I get the I mean, the kind of I kind of get and I'm kinda of baffled by the love those movies have been get, getting how we circumvent them, but they're just not never been for me. I've always associated with them with those guys I those douche bags I knew in high school who were really yeah. way too obsessed with cars. But Mission like Impossible sports. Okay, I can get I can get behind Mission Impossible. I can get behind Tom Cruise is willing to die for our entertainment. That is respectable. For divorce from the context, I think that that's something we should at least commend him for. I mean, yes. Well, I, I'm definitely going to rewatch Under the Silver Lake. We've been talking about this for an hour at this point, and there's still probably stuff we haven't. Oh done. yes. I'm thinking stuff we've missed. To where I'm legitimately thinking about creating a part two where we just rewatch it and write down even more stuff we haven't talked about yet. I mean, it might. That, I'm not promising that. Now, by the way, but it could happen. So, I could definitely maybe. see that happening. <coughs> Anyways. Far out. This, I mean, this has been war- another episode of Warp Celluloid. Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Rourke. Chandler Williams. That, I mean, have, have a good one, and remember, always fly casual.